the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Lauren Smith, co-CEO at FSG, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. There are a number of mission-driven consulting firms in the philanthropic and social change arena, and many of them do excellent work. But there are just a few who are truly thought leaders, whose insights and practices not only help their clients, but inform the entire sector how they can go about their work more creatively and effectively. On that very short list, you would find FSG. And it's a pleasure to have with us this evening the co-CEO of FSG, Lauren Smith. Good evening, Lauren, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, I question a question I know you get asked very often is, what does FSG stand for and how did the organization get started? Somehow I imagine that you might ask that um, (laughs) because I get asked that. I do, in fact, get asked that frequently. So FSG stood for Foundation Strategy Group. And when the firm was founded about 20 years ago, um, the work was primarily focused on providing um, strategic consulting to foundations who wanted to have meaningful and lasting social impact. Over time, the uh, firm expanded the clients with whom they worked in terms of who they wanted to uh, be with in mm-hmm. terms of making the kind of uh, social impact to include corporations, to include place-based um, initiatives. So the foundation strategy group morphed to just simply FSG. You know, you have pioneered uh, a number of concepts that have really helped transform this social uh, arena. And perhaps we can touch on two of the very best, starting with collective impact. Share with us the thinking behind this approach. Well, yes, and I think that what's so meaningful about collective impact is that it it really just synthesized or um, codified what people understood to be true in the social sector, public health sector, sort of across the field, which is that if you want to get after a deep, complex, intractable problem, you're going to need multiple perspectives and multiple kinds of uh, folks involved in solving it. So collective impact essentially was just that multi-sector collaborative process for developing uh, effective change at the systems level. So that was what happened. I think that the key elements there around developing a shared agenda, so people have to get together and feel like, hey, we understand and we define the problem in the same way. One playbook. (laughs) Well, it's shocking how much people feel like they're in the same room having the same conversation, but they're just not because they have different conceptions of the problem. Um, And then, you know, other other elements like, you know, having mutually um, aligned and mutually reinforcing activities and and focus so that you and I don't have to do the same thing, Mm -hmm. but let's be aware of what we're doing so that we can build on the other's work and not be at best, you know, just doing parallel play, but at worst, potentially, you know, competing or undermining, you know, efforts. So there's a number of elements about it, but I think that it really resonated with people because it made sense. And it was really trying to, 
as I said, synthesize or codify what a lot of folks in the field have been really seeing. Yeah, and a very important element of that, which you guys really insisted upon, was that backbone organization. Yes. To, to sort of make sure the trains run on time. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting you you call that out because, you know, we were fortunate to recently have a, a evaluation of about 25 or so collective impact efforts across the country, some of which we participated in and most of which we didn't. But one of the things that the evaluators found was that exactly what you said, the backbone role, having someone whose job it is to think about the whole enterprise and to not set the agenda, mm-hmm. but to create the the container and to create the the space for all those other actors to work effectively that for the folks for the um, collective impact areas that had achieved uh, you know achieved meaningful results the backbone was a really important oh, I role bet. you need someone to make sure that people do what they say they're going to do <laughs> yes and to help them sort of see the connections yeah. across their you know across their work yeah. it's so sad sometimes that people don't ever want to fund the backbone or- organization well, despite how vital it it can be yes i think you're right and i think part of the thing is that you know people People can be seduced or sort of intrigued by what seems shinier or more (laughs) interesting or perhaps more, um, I don't know, uh, fancier. But it's the nitty-gritty work of getting the people together, making sure the meetings happen, identifying partners that maybe haven't been involved, that need to be involved – you know, that's that's roll-up-your-sleeves kind of work, Mm -hmm. um, and it, it is essential. Another important concept that got started at FSG by Harvard professor and co-founder Michael Porter is shared value. What is that? So shared value is really the premise that businesses can achieve a business impact and can make um, profit and do well by doing good. Mm -hmm. That is by uh, achieving and addressing social issues or social problems. And And it was revolutionary at the time when this came out. Yes, because I think the idea then was, well, if business wants to address social problems, it has to do it through its charity Mm -hmm. or through its um, sheer just giving, as opposed to, hey, we could make it part of the core line of business to address something that's a challenge for the society. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, uh, you folks recently released the CSR Strategy Roadmap, and that's a step-by-step guide to CSR. In that report, you say that CSR portfolios have changed dramatically in the last five years. In what way have they changed? Well, I think that in a number of ways. One is I I think that there has been a shrinking of the distance between the folks that are thinking about CSR and the folks that are thinking about the the internal business strategy for the corporation. So whereas before they might have been kind of isolated, you do your thing and we're doing our thing and maybe they interact, maybe they don't. The holiday party, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Whereas now I think that, you know, business and corporation are are much deeper in understanding how they can in fact be mutually reinforcing and and improve the overall um, functioning of the business. And I would just give as an example of that, um, there's a burgeoning interest in businesses creating a culture of health. So there's mm-hmm. a, a number of efforts underway right now where business leaders are thinking about and considering how do we contribute to the overall health and well-being of our communities, our employees, you know, the societies in which we live, 
not only by our corporate philanthropy, but even more importantly, perhaps the main thrust of our business and how we do our business. Health is such a wholesome word, isn't it? Yes, uh, when, yes, when you, of course. When you really apply it to, the, to, to those kinds of uh, efforts. Well, speaking of health, yes. you are a pediatrician, so it stands to reason that much of your work at FSG has been in that health arena. So let's touch on a couple things there. There has been increased attention on adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. How are they defined? What's the estimate of the number of children who have experienced them, and what is their impact on those children? Yes, well, that's a, a very important question, and I, I'm happy to see that the field is recognizing the the impact of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, as you mentioned. And, and those are defined as things that happen in childhood that leave or could leave a lasting sort of toxic effect on yeah. the child. So things like the loss of a parent, things like um, living uh, in homelessness or experiencing or witnessing domestic violence um, of a parent or other you know, loved one in the family. Um, all of those kinds of things lead to a stress response in the child. Mm-hmm. And I think what we now understand, and it's you know really important work at the physiologic level, the impact that stress has on creating um, a longer-term response to that stress over time. And, and one of the reasons, to be honest, I think people are getting more interested in it now is the, the data shows that kids who experience ACEs as, as in childhood are much less, much more likely to have chronic illness uh-huh. and things as, you know, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, a whole host of other issues, as well as, you know, behavioral health issues, as well as not, you know, achieving as much in education or in their economic, you know, output. So I think people are starting to understand that this has these experiences have legs. And importantly, there's ways to mitigate or um, address them and prevent them and help children heal, children and families heal. So, Give, give us an example of one of the ways you can address one of these uh, experiences. Well, one of the, the things <clears throat> that people are really looking into now is sort of how to support families in who are experiencing poverty or economic, you know, uh, difficulties. And that means that there's a, a community-level approach. There needs to be a two-generational approach. You've mm-hmm. probably heard more, many more people thinking and talking about how do you support not just a child, but the child and the family. Um, I think we've matured quite a bit where we used to think, oh, well, we can try to do things for the child as if they don't live in a context of a family yeah. with parents, as if you know what's happening to the parents is unrelated to or unconnected to how the children are doing. So I think there's an increased recognition around, for example, two-generational or cross-generational approaches where it's before – People were focusing more on the child. Yeah, it's a lot along the lines of trying to deal with an individual's health and yeah. being completely uh, unconcerned about the community in which they live. Correct. And you begin to right. look at it and you say, you know, they're actually pretty linked. Well, they're incredibly linked. Yeah. And I think one of the, the things that the field now understands in a much deeper way is what, you know, f- people call the social determinants of health yeah. or the structural determinants of 50%. health. 50%. You know, more than yeah. even. Um, so it's... As a clinician, of course, I am all about uh, making sure that people get fabulous health care that's, you know, evidence-based, you mm-hmm. know, and high quality and appropriate. And I also recognize that 
so much of what drives health, people bring with them before they even get into the clinical setting. So that's where they live, where they go to school. Do they have access to grocery stores? Are they living in a food desert? All those kinds of things. All connected. Um, Well, as a clinician, what's your assessment of what is happening to these migrant children at the border and what should be done given the circumstances? Yes. Well, um, that gives me it's hard to even know where to begin. I mean, it's uh, it's a tragedy of epic proportions because it's we have created it as a as a as a country and as individuals. And to think that we are consciously and knowingly putting children in settings that we know are is causing harm and uh, can have lasting detrimental effects to those children is. Shocking, I think, is a mild way of of putting it. So the idea of what we should be doing, I mean, we need to have a way of, you know, caring for kids at the border. I think separating them from their parents just as a non-starter, that's absolutely not. I mean, that is, you know, you talk about ACEs. Mm. That is, you know. All caps. All caps right up there. Um, And I think we all have seen some of the, the pictures and the footage of just how traumatizing that is, especially for kids who have don't speak the language, obviously, and then are then held in these, these conditions that are pretty inhumane. So I think not separating the kids, having a, a much uh, faster uh, approach or mechanism for resolving, you know, the, the, the immigration status issues. But, mm-hmm. you know, the folks that are coming here, you know, making the trek here um, are not doing so lightly. I mean, so they're 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 making the estimation that this could be better f- than whatever horrors they're fleeing. Yeah, and so that's the other thing I would just say, um, Denver, is that the compounding of, I mean, people are leaving because of trauma that they're experiencing or violence, or uh, then they're experiencing it along the way, and then once they we get them, they we then compound it and exas and intensify it. Um, that's just really a recipe for terrible outcomes for these kids. Yeah. Lauren, U.S. health care at times really seems like a moving target. There are so many proposals. A messy moving <laughs> target. That's right. Everything's being kicked around. you got yeah. proposals. you got plans. In a climate with such uncertainty, how do you and FSG advise the foundations you work with and your clients uh, and philanthropists how they can create real impact? Well, you know, one one question or one way we answer that is to be sure that people are thinking in a compelling and coherent way around what drives the health of communities. Mm -hmm. So while the healthcare system, if you want to call it that in quotes, (laughs) you know, with, you know, being, uh, I think, very um, generous to call it it that, (laughs) to call it a system, um, is in flux. And I think you're quite right. I mean, there's right now, as an example, people are wondering about what kind of uh, you know, universal Medicare for all, you know, is mm-hmm. being talked about, et cetera. Or there, are there other s- structural changes to healthcare delivery? But even within that context, as people are experimenting, they're experimenting with how do you drive value with ha- assessing impact, yep. right? So the really creative work that's happening on the healthcare side is how can we organize how we reimburse and how we uh, set up incentives so that it's aligned with what we know is important for overall health. That's a pretty important shift. And so I think that one of the ways that we can 
sort of support foundations and others who want to continue and and having impact in that area is to help them see where are the opportunities to support that kind of shift and that kind of bridging between healthcare and as you alluded to before the rest of the community where health happens and where people live makes an awful lot of sense speaking about systems FSG was one of the first to appreciate that social change is really about systems change. What are some yes. of the key principles and practices of systems thinking? Well, you know, I'm glad you you made you made that question or asked that question. There's, I think, what's hard about systems change is that it can seem sort of messy or fuzzy, um, and so it it seems maybe um, hard to grasp. But I think the key thing that I would say is that in order for policies, for laws, for regulations, for all those things to change, which are key drivers of systems change when we think about um, legislation and we think about all those sorts of structural pieces. If you go underneath of that, you find that people's understanding of how the world works and their mindsets about what actually a system is or should be or what it's trying to achieve, that has to change too. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've we find and we find very much with our clients is that if you only focus on the programmatic aspects or the the top layer what's more visible and you don't get after the power dynamics or the the relationships and then the mindsets the mind shifts that have to happen then the changes that you do don't stick because they're not supported by you know a more meaningful shift in how people think the world works and how people think that you know problems can be solved. So in our work, we're trying to help people sort of drive down to that and be working at all those different levels yeah. so that they're not only focused on um, the at the policy level, which I should say, as a former public health official, I ran the public health department for Massachusetts. Policy is really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't underestimate that. But you also want to have something underneath that holds it together sure. so that if people leave or move, the policies don't just drift away, but it's the underpinnings that hold it together. It's the old iceberg metaphor. Yes, uh, yes, exactly And right. it is interesting how sometimes you can make some real improvements in a certain area or program, but also have adverse consequences over here that you're not even aware of, not even looking yes. for, not even measuring. But that doesn't happen when you're looking at the entire system and how everything impacts something else. Well, and, and the other piece is that if you're if you're looking at a, a programmatic approach, and I think that the philanthropy field is, you know, evolving rapidly in how it's thinking about its own influence in improving, proving things for the folks that you know people want to to have live better lives and be healthier and 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 all of that. Um, it's it's about not only recognizing that there's a, a program, but thinking about what are the what got the problem to to stay in place, mm-hmm. and this piece around, you know, not only what created the problem, but what's holding it in place, and so much of that, those structural kind of impediments are invisible to people. They don't even think about it because it's so part of the day to day. Well, of course, this is how things are. This is how they've always been, but sure. they don't really the fish see women in water. What's water? What's water? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, so, and often it could be the culture. Right. The that, culture. That, that insidious yeah. culture that's around you that you don't even realize you just accept as the norm. 
Well, as an example, um, I'm sure you've heard that you know Optum, which is a you know very um, mm-hmm. important you know health uh, insurance provider, recently it was found out or elucidated that one of their predictive algorithms that was meant to identify which um, patients were more likely to need healthcare to have more severe illness was flawed and biased, and so it was regularly or systematically under-identifying the African-American patients in the cohort that would need services. So it, for the, it was over-identifying the white patients and under-identifying the black patients. So the, the algorithm had built into it this structural flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now they're aware of it and they're working on it. But that's just an example where that, example. that was just... <laughs> There, yeah, and and we so. tend to bra- blame the algorithm or artificial intelligence without saying, you know, somebody put in all that data <laughs> to begin with, right, right? And how did that data get chosen? How was exactly it selected? Right. And <clears throat> were they intentionally thinking about is this going to undermine our efforts to reduce disparities, or is it going to, you know, potentially exacerbate it? Yeah, and I think that's really important. Lauren, speak about what you do for a client. Now you have a much broader palette than the organization yes. had twenty years ago, but by that, I mean the process. What are the steps you take to identify a problem and then work with that organization or entity to solve it? Sure. Well, we we offer um, – I think one of the most important things that we do with a client is to partner with them over a period of time. Mm. And our approach is not a sort of get in and get out. Um, we go off and do some um, kind of – secret deliberations behind the curtain and then come back with a big reveal, like this is your strategy or this is your evaluation plan. Um, because that doesn't really get the client to where they need to be, which is to understand and to own it and to have gone through the process of developing it themselves so that they can really see how to operationalize it. And I think that that's an important stylistic approach yeah. for us is that we we co-create with our clients we help them think about not just the strategy that we're developing with them, but what are the learning questions that they want to have embedded in that so that they can learn and evolve as they grow? Because there's no way of knowing exactly what's going to happen a couple of years from now. So to have a, a static approach really wouldn't serve the clients well. So to have a, a learning orientation, to have a sense of how evaluation is going to get um, in there, um, all of that is you know a key part of our approach. So for our corporate clients and for our foundation clients and in our play-based work, we we provide analysis, we provide sort of the strategic framing, and I think part of what we do is just really ask questions and help people answer them in a structured, disciplined way that gets them to where they want to go. The other part that we do is help people remind folks of what it is that they're looking to achieve yeah. and what might be barriers to them achieving that. Because sometimes, um, you know, people are smart. They they have ideas about what they want to do, but they may not always be aware of some of the ways that they're functioning or some of the ways they're organized or some of the the the, the ways they're not seeing what those opportunities are. You know, you sound like a firm who's very much of a coach. Yes. Because there's a belief that the organization you're dealing with knows the answers. Yes. And they have them inside them. In fact, they probably know the answers better than you. And your job is to get those obstacles out of the way so those 
answers can rise to the surface and they can solve yes. the problem. And and bringing people, you know, examples of, you know, how other folks have approached or solved that problem for sure. But I do, you know, that idea of a coach or sometimes we talk about it being a guide on the side, yeah. you know, where we will work with the staff of an organization, we'll work with the board, um, we'll create and, and help create an atmosphere where all of them can learn and grow together. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we'll be in a situation where the board is way ahead of the staff and you know the staff want to keep doing things the way that they've been doing it and the board has this vision of how they want to proceed. Sometimes it's the opposite yeah. <laughs> where the staff is like, no, this is really what we need to be doing. But the board you know, is kind of stuck several decades in the past with, you know, not a clear understanding or not a, a nuanced or or uh, evolved understanding of how they can have impact. So depending on what situation we find ourselves, we'll try to sort of support get, whatever. Get them working at the sp- same speed because you don't yeah. want one to be too far ahead of the other. Right. It's not healthy. And, right. Well, and we want to make sure that we can help folks understand what the rationale is and how it's related to being effective. Mm-hmm. I think that that's been the most um the most compelling and I think rewarding thing is when we've come with into uh, situations where there's friction or you know there might be tension. If we can peg it on what are the guiding principles and what is it that you're really wanting to achieve and hold that up as yeah. the north star, mm-hmm. it's like, are you getting there? Mm-hmm. If you're not getting there, then let's you know. If you're authentic about wanting that to be true then let's get under there and, and figure out what's going that on. That will solve a lot of disputes if you yeah. get everybody looking at the North Star because yeah. that's where the answer will yeah. very often be. Yeah. As you know, in the foundation world, they're always talking about this power imbalance between yes. those who have the money, the foundations, and are giving it out, and the grantees who are trying to receive it, and we're always trying to even that up. But now that's even a broader conversation in all of philanthropy, particularly philanthropy in a democratic society. Yes. What can philanthropists do to um, channel their power mm-hmm. in a different way to have a more collaborative approach uh, to make the world a better place? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and I, and I think it, it hits on a theme that we've been seeing across our work, which is a deepening understanding of the need for a reckoning, an, mm. a, a, an understanding of what has come before, why things haven't worked, um, and that you're not operating in a vacuum or with a complete blank canvas. So when we go into a, a community or we go to you know help a foundation, what we're trying to sort of help them understand is what was it that happened before? How did these problems get sort of established? What was the specific local context? What you know what int- what created that? Um, and then you know adding on to that a sense of built into or not built into, but sort of underneath all of the the really deep, intractable social problems that, that our clients want to face, there are equity implications mm-hmm. in terms of who has had the opportunity to be included, who hasn't, um, and how are those dis- how has that been a conscious choice versus an unconscious choice, and how we can sort of elevate that and make that explicit. So including communities in the work in an authentic way, um, and by authentic, I mean really being in partnership with folks uh, and tr- allowing or affording the, uh, the community to have the kind of voice and perspective built in throughout the whole, say, strategy process mm-hmm. or development process. That's really 
that's evolving. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, there, you know, the prior approach might be to maybe you'd have a focus group yeah. or maybe you'd have an advisory committee. But you tell it, everybody you did that. <laughs> right. So you did that and then you feel like, okay, check. Yep. I've done that. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, people are much more um, uh, sophisticated now in terms of, like, you know, that didn't really work because it wasn't a meaningful integration of the community voice and perspective throughout the entire process. And so people are, are doing much more of that and having to reckon with and being willing to sometimes be, or maybe not sometimes, oftentimes being uncomfortable in settings where the community may um, demand mm-hmm. or sort of call attention to ways that the organization hasn't behaved as a as a as a real authentic respectful partner. Yeah, and in going through the history the way you talked about too, there are so many assumptions yeah. that we make and yeah. assume that this is the way it was and it's only when you begin to track back and find out how those assumptions were developed you begin right. to say, "Oh my gosh, right. was that the reason?" But right. right now, they're just unconscious in a normal way of business. Well, right. speaking about equity in your role as co-CEO, you have really led FSG's staff development efforts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, not only among the staff, but in the community and the clients you work with. Speak a little bit about that, because so many people are having a hard time with it. I mean, their intentions are good. Yes. Their outcomes are less good. Yeah. What are some of the things you've been doing, and what are some of the things that have been working? Well, we have we found or we believe that for us to be credible at supporting our clients and doing the kind of reckoning work that we were just talking about, we have to be able and willing to do that ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, for ourselves. And so that means, as an example, recognizing that originally when the collective impact sort of in uh, concept was sort of delivered or sort of synthesized, there were important elements of equity that weren't built in, that weren't sort of called out explicitly. Now, since then, sort of acknowledged that, and I think the field was quite um, appropriate in calling um, attention to that. Mm-hmm. So I think we have internally been on our own journey in terms of how we think about our work and our place in our work. And so we're still, you know, that's a work in progress. Um, and we're we're doing that own reckoning that we're talking about. We're doing that own sort of analysis of where power is and who has it and who doesn't. Um, and then when we work with clients, you know, if there are, you know, we make it a point of trying to understand if there are unspoken issues that may have percolated in a community and everyone kind of you know, has tacitly agreed not to talk about them mm-hmm. because that's too messy or too uncomfortable. Um, so we're empowering our staff, our senior leaders to be able to ask those questions and they're getting more, um, what do you call, uh, exercising the muscles of doing that with our each other so that we can, you know, be able to exercise those muscles with our clients. Well, it's good because you... Um it's uncomfortable to ask those questions too. It, it so, is uncomfortable, and I think being able but to sort of start it, it gets, uh, gets yes. easier and, and easier. acknowledge that no one's perfect, and that yeah. we're all sort of have those kinds of flaws, and and everyone is on their own journey. Um, so I think being able to be um, humble and have some humility, we're not coming at this like, oh, we figured it out. Like mm-hmm. you know, we're here to swoop in and you know help enlighten you. That's not the the positioning at all. It's it's much more like we we know how important this is now, and we're really trying to work hard to 
incorporate it into everything that we're doing. Yeah, and as you say, you're not only listening to what is said, you're listening to what is not said. And that right. can be sometimes even more important. Right. As we mentioned earlier, you were a pediatrician. Yes. And there are not that many people, a couple I can think of, who uh, begin that way and are now yes. leading a mission-driven consulting firm. Speak about the transition. Uh, mm. What was the impetus for it? What is going well and easy? And right. what are you finding to be a bit more challenging? Well, you know, I did have to explain this to a few people. You know, what's what's what is this with this change? Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a pediatrician. I worked in a, a public... Um, kind of hospital setting in, in Boston, inner city Boston. Mm-hmm. So the kids I took care of were kids from the city of Boston, but also kids from all over the world um, who land in Boston because they're fleeing the kinds of things that we were talking about earlier in terms of you know, global disruption and, and whatnot. So that was where I became grounded in understanding that you know kids and families, their, their health effects weren't spontaneously generated. You know, they really are the products of where they live and the structures around them and their environments. So then I went to work for the Department of Public Health for the state of Massachusetts, and it was really there that I got to hone my skills at cross-sector, that multi-sector collaboration we were talking about with Collective Impact. I yeah. got to practice that. I didn't know that, you know, I didn't have that term for mm-hmm. it, but that's that's what we were doing with, you know, across public-private collaborations, et cetera. Um, and so... I come to this work, the consulting work. I think I really bring that lens of working with families, thinking about systems, you know, at the structural level, and thinking big picture in terms of at the population level. So that's the the mindset or the worldview that I bring to this work, and I think it's helpful for our clients because that's the level that they want to be, you know, having impact. So, how do you think that perspective has influenced the firm in your tenure there? Well, uh, I September is four years, yeah. so I've been there for four years. And as you uh, pointed out, I uh, have a different background than mm-hmm. many of the other folks. And I think that it's been refreshing to a lot of folks to to have someone who has you know led a, an organization. So I led the department. We have you know three thousand employees, and was responsible for for having a at enterprise and having to to. To lead that, I think, is different than only, you know, consulting about it. So I, I think that it brings that kind of lived experience. Um, and I think just having a, a diversity of perspectives and worldviews, I believe, always makes the product better or the, the results better because you're – we all don't know what we don't know or we don't <laughs> – we can't see what we can't see. And so having, you know, engaged colleagues – that have different perspectives in the same way we're talking about having the community deeply involved means that you're you're not going to miss things. Yeah, so. yeah. Let me close with this, Lauren. In working with the clients that you do to bring about positive social change, is there one area you find to be particularly challenging at the moment where it's just so difficult to bring about the change that these organizations, these communities, these people are looking for? Well, th- that is a tough question because, you know, we work in – so many different areas, you know, with education, juvenile justice reform, um, so many different topic areas. But I would say that underlying perhaps all of the – or underlying the, the social issues that are confronting our clients, the foundations and the corporations that want to get after, get after these issues really is around economic inequality mm-hmm. and the perpetual – or the um, – continued deep divide 
in what people have and what they need to survive, and not just to survive, but to thrive. Um, so I think if you look across our entire portfolio of work, whether or not it's the work we do here, the work we do abroad, you know, um, in Asia or uh, on the continent, on the African continent, that is, I think, the underpinning in, in terms of that economic and other insecurity that comes from that level of um, inequality. That is a tough one. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Well, Lauren Smith, the co-CEO of FSG, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For people to learn more about these concepts and the areas in which you work, tell us about your website and some of the information you got up there. Well, you can go to fsg.org. Um, it will talk about, or you can find information about our practice with corporations, with foundations, as well as our initiatives, um, where we bridge the work of our consulting with the work in the field. And we have this, it's kind of like a, a do tank, mm -hmm. right? Where we have a, an opportunity to apply the things that we're learning outside in the field and then bring that back to our consulting work and then back out in the field again. So we have the, the Collective Impact Forum, we have the Shared Value Initiative, um, and we have Talent Rewire, which is really exciting working with uh, employers on how to do employment differently. Well, I look to get, pick up a new word or phrase every day, and do tank will be today's. <laughs> well, thanks, Lauren. It was a great, great pleasure to have you on the show. Great. Thank you. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.